Hey, so if you're new with us today, we're glad that you're with us. And uh, if uh, you've been with us, you know that we've been journeying this summer through uh, the book of Romans and really over the greater course of the year. And uh, I have to start this morning with a little bit of confession time. So uh, as, as we, uh, the preaching teaching team and our elders, came to this idea um, a long time ago uh, that we were going to work through the book of Romans this year, um, here was what was going on inside of me as a person. When we do that, I'm going to have to preach Romans 11. And um, as we read Romans 11 together this morning, uh, I hope you can maybe just groan with me a little bit. And like, it's really difficult. <laughs> like, it's just a difficult chapter to read and to, to think through. And I remember as we were going through that, you know, like, um, I, I don't know if this has happened to you, but it happened to me, right? So, like, I, I, we sensed that the Lord's leading us to go through the book of Romans, and all of a sudden I'm like, all right, how can I preach through Romans and not preach Romans 11? Maybe I can ask Dave Sullivan to do the sermon that day, I don't you know, or, you know, maybe, maybe uh, we can just, you know, pretend like it's not there and skip over that. Uh, I... I uh, like, it's easy for me to, to give into the temptation to just perform, right? To perform. And it's like, man, Romans 11 is tough. I'm not sure that I really want to lean into that. I, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And sin does that to us, doesn't it? It causes us to want to hide. It causes us to want to figure out a way to avoid uh, and, and to not be transparent. And uh, then we sing songs like we just sang that proclaim to us back the truth of the gospel. That when we're in Christ, we're free of sin, we're free of shame, and uh, we are defined not by our sin, but by Christ himself. And so um, today, we're going to jump into Romans 11. We're just going to read the whole chapter to begin and then pray for our time in the Word. But as we do that, I want you to think about this. Over the last uh, several weeks, I've asked us as a group, uh, different kinds of questions to share with our neighbors. And so uh, to maybe help you to feel the tension that maybe I have felt before, uh, I'm going to ask you to imagine if today I had asked you to share with your neighbor that one sin that you'd been hiding. <laughs> Melissa Ballard felt it. <laughs> She's over here laughing. She's sitting beside Josh. She probably doesn't even want to tell Josh, right? Like the, the, there's an awkward tension when I'm like, Okay, guys, I just want you to take the next 30 seconds and share with your neighbor next to you that one sin that you've been hiding from the world. You're like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> we don't want to do that. And yet we sing about the freedom from sin and shame that we have in the gospel. Right? So there's a tension there that, that we want to address. Why do we hide? Why do we hide? And uh, as we read through Romans 11, as we consider what the gospel is saying to us, I believe that the Lord is going to give us a newfound confidence, not in ourselves, but in who he is and how he loves us, all right? So, uh, Romans 11, settle in. If you've got a padded chair, thank God. And let's read Romans 11 together. Paul is writing. He's writing to a Gentile audience in Rome. And he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. That's what Elijah said. But what was God's answer to him? I've left 7,000 for myself and who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also at that present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Hmm. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it's written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. And I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now, I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, insofar as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you. If you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And even if they, even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree, and again against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. As you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. So they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word that reveals to us the truth about who you are and how you love us. Father, we pray that your spirit would come and give us understanding, teach us, challenge, and change us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine if I'd ask you to share that one sin you'd been hiding? I know I couldn't do that if I were sitting uh, beside someone out there this morning. And yet many of us here this morning would at the same time say, right, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. We would amen the, the passages that we read there at the end of that chapter. Yes, that is who Christ is for me. He died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. But the implication of that would be that we have nothing to hide. That if he's forgiven me of my sins, we would have nothing to hide. So why do we hide? Why do we hide? As we read in Romans 11, Paul is, is taking us on this journey kind of back through Old Testament history to help the people in his time understand how salvation had come to them. And what we see as he talks about the Jewish people, is that they had allowed what described them to begin to define them. Don't we do that too? We allow what describes us to begin to define us. You see, the Jews took great pride in being Jews. It was something that, that they were proud of. It made them, in their minds, who they were. Verses 7 through 10 uh, talks about this hardening that began to happen because all of a sudden the things that they were or the things that they did became who they were. And, and so we read about those things, and, and as they begin to define them, it says that there was a hardening there, that the Lord began to harden them because pride was welling up in them, Right? Who they were was, was more defined by what they would describe themselves as rather than being defined by the God who created them and had a plan for them. Paul, in his life, could have been described the same way, but he was no longer defined by it. In verse 1, we read about his description, right? He says, uh, I asked him, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. And, and that would have carried great clout in the Jewish culture, in the population. It would have made him a somebody. But he sees these things not as something that defines him, but as something that describes him. And so I want to ask you to think about as we go through these next minutes, what are some things some, that describe you that maybe you've allowed to begin to define you? Who do others describe you to be? And if you allowed those things to become who you are instead of things that you do. Because you see, when we allow what describes us to define us, it begins to manifest itself in pride and in arrogance. And that hardening comes. We read about what this can look like when, when we don't get a hold of it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. Paul here is writing to Timothy about kind of the end times, and he says this, For people will be lovers of self, Lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then he says this, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Whew. Avoid these people. You see, when we begin to take the things that describe us, the things that we kind of hang our hat on, the things that maybe we're proud of, and we allow those things to begin to define us, we hold on to the form of godliness. We see those as good things, but we begin to deny the power that God has to forgive us of our sins. 
And we become people to be avoided. You know, one of the things that scares me about our culture today is that we've become this culture where we just want to uh, give affirmation without any basis. We've allowed a culture of self-help to tell us repeatedly that we're great. <laughs> like, you could do something crazy as a parent and you feel terrible about it and then your friends are like, oh, no, 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 you're a great mom. You're a great mom. We could be a terrible spouse. We could feel really bad about it and then somebody comes along and says, you're a great husband. You, you've got this. You know, people talk all the time about participation medals. Uh, I thought it was really funny yesterday. We ended our baseball season, and, you know, our kids get their medals. Uh, they finished last in the tournament. <laughs> they, get their, they get their participation medals. But then it was really borne out because Caitlin wants to take their picture with their medal, you know, and Tinley holds up a number one, and she's got her medal on. And then Preston gets up there. He's, gosh, he's so cute. He's my kid, I know, but he's cute. And he goes... Holds up three fingers. Like, what are you doing? He's, this is my third medal. <laughs> like, that's awesome. You know, you know like, uh, that, here I go again. Like, just automatic affirmation. And, and, and hear me when I say this. I'm not saying it's bad to tell people what they excel at. I'm not saying that it's bad to affirm others' gifts and strengths. But on the other side of the spectrum, we've allowed what describes us to define us. We've allowed what was meant to be fruit in our lives to become the root of our lives. We've allowed things that, that maybe are supposed to be things that are coming out of who we are to be the things that we build our lives on entirely. And problems emerge when we begin to build our lives on these foundations. If Preston begins to build his life on being a baseball player when he's finishing last and holding up three fingers in the air, he's going to be sorely disappointed. But so many of us do the same things. We pride ourselves on being a great parent, a great spouse. We pride ourselves on being a good business person. We begin to build our lives on the foundations of these things that describe us rather than the thing that should define us. I'm a great parent. That's who I am. I'm an awesome leader. That's what I stand on. I'm really gifted at fill in the blank. And that's how people know me. As a teen, right, maybe at school, everyone tells me that I'm good at or, or they say, I'm the one who does this, and I'm known for something. We, we crave this wanting to be known. We're searching for this identity, and the things that describe us become the things that define us. And, and when we begin to build our lives on that and take pride in that, it just rips us apart and disappoints us. Here's one way that I know I struggle with this myself. It's a battle for all of us. Jeff Bracken, Many of you know Jeff. He was a pastor elder here at Christ Community, and God called him to help lead at Midland, and, and he went out of obedience, and uh, he's doing great things. And now, as many of you know, he is riding his bike across the country to raise awareness for this thing called Usher's Syndrome. Usher's, if you don't know, is a, is a genetic condition uh, where he's progressively becoming blind and deaf. And uh, each week, his brother, Dan, is producing a podcast with him called Riding Blind. It comes out on Monday mornings. It's a Monday morning must at our house. And he talks about the ride. It's really fun. He talks about the ride. They talk about how Jeff overcomes difficulties, uh, a whole lot more. And on one of the episodes, uh, I've known Jeff since I came to Christ. I, mean, I should qualify that, right? Like They were the first people to host us in their home in 2013. And uh, he's just a great guy. And, 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 and I know a lot about Jeff. But on one of the episodes, Jeff began to talk about how he got into biking in the first place. 
And he talked about how one of the things that he enjoyed doing to exercise and just relax was play basketball. And he began to talk about the moment uh, that, that he realized, I can't play basketball anymore. Like, I can't see well enough to play basketball anymore. And so, you know, he went through a season where he was trying to figure out, what am I going to do to relax? What am I going to do to, you know, exert some energy? And, and eventually he picked up biking. And then his brother Dan asked this question uh, that came up in the conversation. He's like, what, what are you going to do when you can't bike anymore? And they began to talk about how Jeff wasn't sure what he would do when he wasn't able to do that anymore, when he was too blind and too deaf to bike. And he talked about the difficulty of the realization and, and that moment that he just decided, I'm just going to have to figure it out. Like, i got to overcome that too. And I realized as I sat and I listened to this that, that as well as I knew Jeff, as good of a friend as Jeff was, I had never gotten that far into Jeff's shoes. I'd never even thought about the things that I do to relax being taken away. And I realized that even in that, there's like, there's just some pride. There's some, like, I've built my life on identities and things that are going to fade away. There are things that, about who I am, or who I think I am, that, that, like, they're just not worth building my life on. And that's the thing with so many of the things that describe us. In a moment, they can be taken away from us. In the face of tragedy, most all of those things can't get us through. They, they can't do anything to help us. They simply describe us. And when we allow them to define us, we inevitably find out that they are terrible things to build our lives on. In the end, we can't, we can't hide behind our works forever. We can't hide behind our performance. We can't hide behind our words. And when we try, we come to this realization that Paul did in verse 6. Verse 6, we read this. Now, if by grace, if God is choosing us, if he's choosing to love us by grace, then it's not by works. And otherwise, this phrase is just, oh, chilling. Grace ceases to be grace. Grace ceases to be grace. You see, when we wrestle with who we are and our identity, and we begin to define ourselves by things that simply describe us, God's grace ceases to be grace. Instead of feeling loved by God, we still feel separated from Him. And then we wonder why. It's because we've allowed what describes us, our works, to define us. But thanks be to God, there's good news. You see, the good news of Jesus does not leave us in that spot where grace ceases to be grace. Instead, it reminds us of how God's love really works. And Paul does that in verse 22. Look back with me, if you would. It says, therefore, right? There's a, therefore is always a change in, in what's going on in the text. And Paul says, therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Consider God's kindness and severity. Like, I don't want to consider God's severity. I just want to consider his kindness. You see, the fullness of God's love, kindness and sincerity, is this theme that runs all throughout Scripture. And until we begin to really and truly grasp how wide and how deep and how full the love of God is, we will continue to struggle with who we really are. You see, Paul here in this verse is shadowing what we see in the Old Testament. It's known as God's hesed love. 
Hesed is this Hebrew word that's used to describe the love of God in the Old Testament, and there has never been a good way to translate it into English. We've often attached the word mercy or loving kindness to it, but it's, it's so much fuller than that. It's, it's fuller than what our language allows us to grasp. It's the idea that God's love is, is perfect. It's both full of mercy, but it's also aligned with the truth. It has kindness and severity. So you see, this idea of hesed, it's been running throughout Scripture for, for all of time. You see, first, hesed is, is realized on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 34, 6, we read about Moses going back up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, the, the commandments that are to guide, God, guide God's people. And Moses asked the Lord to show himself, to, to, to come by him. And God says, oh, no, 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 you can't see my face. You can't see my face. So get in the crack, right, and I'll, I'll, I'll come by you. And he says this, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding and this is the word hesed, in faithful love and truth. And so here hesed is realized. But then hesed is also remembered because what happened is God says, listen, I'm going to love you forever. It's full of faithful love and truth. I'm going, to, I'm going to always be there. This covenant that I've made with you, it lasts for all of time. But the Israelite people, they forgot that. And they just did whatever they wanted and acted like the love wasn't real. They began to trade in what defined them, God's love and his forgiveness, for the things that described them that they were Jewish people. And so he reminds them in Lamentations and other, so other places, but I love this rendition, Lamentations 3, 31, 32. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his hesed, faithful love. But then, but then something happens. Jesus comes and hesed becomes real. We see it in the flesh. John 1.14, John writes about Jesus, calls him the Word. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A shadowing of the Lord's hesed, his faithful love. One scholar described hesed this way. He said, the word hesed is the descriptor par excellence of God in the Old Testament. The word speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who is in a position of power. This was the Israelites' experience of God. He revealed himself to them when they were not looking for him, and he kept his covenant with them long after their persistent breaking of it had destroyed any reason for his continued keeping of it. Unlike humans, this deity was not fickle. He was not undependable. He was not self-serving and grasping. Instead, he was faithful, true, upright, and generous. Always. You know, another way to say it is simply love in the long term. It's love in the long term. Paul, in this passage in Romans 11, is pointing his readers back to the hesed love of God to remind us that in those moments where we think God has stopped loving us, he has promised to love us forever. It's a love that's perfect, not fickle. It's a love that has grace and truth. It's a love that is committed in the moments that we don't understand commitment. You see, when God's mercy, his, his hesed love defines you, God's mercy delivers you. When God's mercy defines you, God's mercy delivers you. It is the thing that gets you through. It gets you through when you don't know who you are. In those moments like when you move from high school to college and everything that you were is now nothing because there's a whole new group of people, God's mercy delivers you. 
It gets you through when someone close to you is facing death or, or maybe has died, and life and death seem to make no sense. You can't reconcile it in your mind. It's in those moments that God's hesed reminds you that compassion is coming, that he will love you through the times of grief that you are about to experience. God's hesed gets you through when doctors don't give you the diagnosis that you don't want. Your life is not defined by the disease is what he's reminding you. But your life instead is defined by the one who will still love you on the other side of that disease. His love gets you through those hard days of marriage. In those days, remember that God loves both of you with a faithful love, a long-term love, and that he has created the same kind of bond with you and your spouse, that hesed love, because when God's mercy defines you, God's mercy will deliver you through those moments. You see, when you don't understand why something has happened, when you, when you fail to understand, you can know that God's mercy will deliver you. It may not look like you think it's going to look. It may not feel like you think it's supposed to feel. But he is faithful. That is God's hesed love. And that's what Paul wants the Gentiles to understand in Romans 11. He said, instead of looking at the Jews and judging them for how they fell away and thinking that you've got this figured out, remember that God loves them just as much as he loves you and that he will continue to love them. Caitlin, my wife, is a magnet for mosquitoes. Magnet. We can be sitting on the deck for like two minutes and it seems like five mosquitoes have already bitten her. And so bug repellent is a very important part of our lives because we like to sit on the deck. So when it comes to that, we do it all. We've got essential oil bug sprays, essential oil candles. This year we've gone to these little incense sticks. I mean, we do it all. We pull it all out to keep those mosquitoes from biting. Maybe y'all like mosquitoes biting you. I don't, I don't know. We don't. We don't. But even so, with all of that work, right, there are always at least a couple of bug bites on someone in our family after we've sat on the porch. We can, we can do everything in our power to try and not get bit by a mosquito, and we're going to get bit by a mosquito. Now, I want you to imagine with me, I just can't imagine this. Maybe somebody can, but imagine with me that after taking all of those measures, 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 <laughs> all those measures to hold the bugs at bay, that we just let the mosquitoes like sit on our skin. You do all that, I'm like, hey, Caitlin, there's a mosquito on your face. Oh, cool. Hope he gets his fill of my blood. Like, go ahead, little buddy. Doesn't make any sense, right? No, like, if she's not swatted it, somebody else is walking up and swatting it. No, it's... Like, you just, you, you want the bug to get off of you. You squash it, you swat it, you do both. It would make no sense for us to just let the mosquito suck the blood out of us. But you know, that's exactly what pride does to us. It's exactly what pride does to us. You see, it's not your ability to hold off sin it's your ability to cast off sin when it comes. Look at what Paul writes in verse 20. 
He says, true enough, right? He acknowledges that, and he says, true enough. They were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but beware. Beware. Paul is warning the Gentiles, don't get proud. Don't stand on on what describes you. Just because the gospel has come to you now and you realize that you're forgiven like, and, and like you are figuring out this, this following Christ thing, like don't get proud about that either. Pride, you see, causes us to learn all the ways that we can hold off sin. It presses good morals into us and it causes us to teach our kids manners. We just want our kids to do the right thing, all the good things. And we put on all this spiritual sin spray. I'm going to do all the things to keep sin away from my life. And those are good. But then way too often, right, sin is like a mosquito. You can do all the things and you're still going to get bit by it. But when sin latches itself onto us, instead of swatting it away, instead of squashing it, instead of repenting, being honest, we're content to let it suck the life out of us. Why? Why do we hide? It's because pride is telling us to not let anyone know that there's a big old fat mosquito on our face. (laughs) Cover it up. Don't let anybody see. You see, it's not your ability to hold off sin. It's your ability to cast it off when it comes. That's how we acknowledge the faithful love of God. We don't acknowledge the faithful love of God by trying our best all the time to do exactly the right thing. Like We we want to do that, but we're going to fail. We do it best when we just cast off the sin when it comes. Because you see, no matter what you do, sin is coming for you. Pride is telling you not to let, any know, let anyone know what, what it is that's grabbed you. The steadfast love of Christ, his hesed love, it teaches us, it says to us, repent. Don't let pride win. Beware of it. Don't be arrogant. It gives us confidence to do that because we know that we can count on God's love. That is the thing that's going to get us through. So church, don't let sin keep sucking the life out of you. Don't let sin keep sucking the life out of you. Don't continue to hide. You see, when we all do this together, we begin to see things that we never thought possible. We move from living in a culture of tolerance where we simply try to get along with everybody and accept them for who they are to a culture of grace. And a culture of grace is also filled with truth. Imagine being able to have a conversation with someone where you were able to talk not only about your salvation, but also about your sin. That's what we're talking about. You see, Paul describes himself as a Jew through and through. But his ministry was to the Gentiles. So was he just tolerating them? Was he just putting up with them, thinking the whole time that he was really better because he was a Jew? What was his why? What would possess him to to go and lay aside everything that described him, all of these descriptors as a Jew, what would cause him to lay that down and say, I'm going to, to do this ministry to the Gentiles? You see, it was the vision of what might be if Jews and Gentiles both worshiped God together. Paul's ministry isn't about making the Gentiles like the Jews or the Jews like the Gentiles, although neither would be wrong. It's not about the Jews and the Gentiles tolerating one another although that could be helpful. It's about each person who is in Christ recognizing that their sinful disobedience has united them because of the mercy of God that now defines them. 
You see, you are defined by God's mercy. Look at verse 32. Paul sums it up. He says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. As we finish up, I want you just to imagine with me what a church that was rooted in God's love, his faithful Hesed love, might look like. Imagine going to a community group and not having to put on your church face. You know what I'm talking about. That's the hope and the vision that we strive for. But it's never accomplished if you're not willing to put in the time to build faithful, loyal relationships that are built on committed love for one another. See, many of us are afraid to engage because we're afraid somebody might find out that sin we're hiding. Imagine going to church and not being defined by your race or your social status or the amount of your paycheck. That's the hope and the vision that can never come to be if we're always hiding behind our sin. And yet God's faithful love says you don't have to. You're forgiven. Imagine being a part of a conversation, I talked about this, where someone cared about both your sin and your salvation. That's the hope, right? That, that we as a church will begin to have conversations in our homes and at coffee shops and at restaurants where we're being the body of Christ, where we live, work, and play, where we, where we have the freedom to talk about both our sin and our salvation without judging one another and just encouraging one another to continue in the love of God. You see, when we mimic the steadfast love of God, these things are possible. They're possible. We can love in a way that brings life. One author penned these words and summing up what it might look like. He says, because hesed is, is often active, it's translated as mercy or loving kindness. But neither of these words fully convey that hesed acts out of unswerving loyalty, even to the most undeserving. He writes, Hesed is a bone-weary father who drives through the night to bail his drug addict son out of jail. Hesed is a mom who spends day after thankless day spoon-feeding and wiping up after her disabled child. Hesed is an unsung pastor's wife whose long-suffering, tearful prayers keep her exhausted husband from falling apart at the seams. Hesed is a love that can be counted on decade after decade. It's not about the thrill of romance, but the security of faithfulness. Church, as we finish today, we're going to gather at the same place that we do each week, the Lord's table. And there is no greater reminder of the faithful and loyal love of Christ. When we come forward, we take a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice, and we do that to remember how loyal the love of Christ was. Loyal enough to endure death on a cross. He would die for you. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide anymore. But if you're separated from God today, maybe you've never known Him, or maybe that sin, that big mosquito on your face that you're unwilling to swat away, if you're separated from Him, then that bread is just bread, and that juice is just juice. 
It becomes a religious act in which just like the Israelites, your eyes can't see, your ears can't hear, and you're in a spiritual stupor. And if that's you today, there's no shame in that. There is no shame in that because we are not defined by those things, but we are defined by the mercy of God. But if that's you, repent. (laughs) Turn from it. Walk away from it. Don't work on it. Don't try to make yourself better. Give yourself to the grace of God. How do you do that? This morning as we respond, I want to ask you to think about maybe doing it a little differently than you've done in the past. I want you to walk with someone here that you know. If that's you and sin has separated you, you're far from Christ, I want you to go and grab your community group leader. I want you to go and grab maybe the person that invited you to Christ's community in the first place. I want you to maybe go be with the community group leader that you used to have but you haven't connected with in six months and you're ashamed to go talk to them because there's sin living in your life. I want you to go grab those people. I want you to be real with them. Don't hide your sin anymore. Repent. Why? Because God's love is faithful. It's faithful. He has promised. He has promised to forgive you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And you can take that promise to the bank. God's love is incredibly good. And as we close, I want you to to stand with me and we're going to, to pray a prayer that we read at the end of the chapter. And so if you would, stand with me, please. You know, Paul writes this chapter. He writes this chapter and he says, listen, don't get too arrogant about how you're looking at other people's lives and trying to figure out where you stand. Don't get caught up in defining yourself by the things that describe you. Because at the end of the day, The one thing we can count on is God's faithful love, his faithful love. And because of that, this is the prayer that Paul writes. This is the hymn, the celebration that he sings back to him. And so this morning as we respond to the faithful love of God, we're going to begin by doing this together. Would you read with me? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.